Good morning. Well, that's much, but last week I said that and everybody sat in silence, so that feels like everybody's really engaged and super excited, so let's see if we can keep that up. Um, is it just me or is it about 100 degrees in here? It's like absolutely melting. Does anyone know how to turn the heating off? Yeah. Excellent. John's the way to do it. Great. I mean, I know how to turn the heating off, but if I go down and do that, then there'll be nobody here to preach, so um, Brilliant. We are in the second, seri- second sermon of our sermon series uh, that we started last week called Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And really what we're trying to do here, and we're going to take about 18 months really to go through all of this, is to, act, is to deal with this question that I think is just a reality for us both as Christians but in our wider world as well. And it comes from the Bible. John chapter 10 verse 10. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life in all of its abundance. It's a brilliant verse. And yet it creates this incredible dissonance in us, right? It creates this sense of, yeah, but, yeah I'm not, I don't really feel that. I'm not experiencing that. What, what is this life and life in all its abundance? I can hardly pay my bills. I can't cope with all the work that I've got. And there's this great tension. And so last week I suggested that actually the Bible itself contains part of the solution to that question. Well, the Bible contains all of the solution to that question, just for clarity's sake. But in Matthew chapter 11, I don't have my doofer, by the way, just in case. Um, In Matthew chapter 11, Eugene Peterson translates it this way. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out in religion? And I asked last week, and I'll ask the same now, is there anyone who can identify with that? I won't ask you to be personal, but we can, right? We know some of this. Get away, come to me, Jesus says, and that is the solution. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And what we were saying last week is that the center of that whole verse is this idea that we are to be with Jesus. There is no discipleship that goes anywhere that is not fundamentally about being with Jesus. That has to be the beginning of it and in some sense the end of it. And so this is part one of the much wider series. And so between now and Advent, we're going to be looking at this question of how do we be with Jesus? What does that actually look like? And the good thing for us is we are not the first person to ask this question. The Bible has, uh, the, the church history is filled with people who have tried to figure out ways that can be helpful for us to be with Jesus. And so that's part one of the series. The second part will be, will be about becoming like Jesus and the third part is doing what Jesus did. Now, the thing is, it's not linear. I don't want you to think of this going, well, in 18 months' time, we'll start thinking about the stuff of doing what Jesus did or becoming like him. But actually, our Christian lives are just this constant circle of going from being with Jesus to becoming like Jesus. I think one is a consequence of the other. And then as we become like Jesus, we do the things he did. But then we need to be again with Jesus. And that cycle goes on and on. So we're going to take a whole load of time because I'm convinced of one thing, that if we are supposed to be about anything as a church over the next 18 months, it's about making disciples of Jesus. 
We should probably never be about anything else. But that is what we're going to put a lot of our effort into. How do we become more like Jesus? How do we become disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus? And so today, we are going to look at the question of solitude and silence. That is going to be our first practice. And what we said last week was we're going to look at seven practices between now and Advent uh, as ones that can help us be with Jesus. And these are practices. They're things we actually do. They're not ideas. I don't want you to have anything that you're going away going, well, this is a whole new concept. What we're talking about is some practices that we can grab. I think they come out of Scripture, but they definitely come out of church history. So this week we're going to look at solitude and silence. And I want to stress to you that in this one, maybe above all the other practices we will look at, I want you to understand I am a learner with you and most definitely not an expert in this. In fact, I would go as far as to say I am terrible at this practice. But I know when I do grasp it, is one of the most life-giving things. And one of the reasons that we're going to start with it, because in some sense, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to put in the seven practices that we've chosen in whatever order. There's nothing that says this one must be first and this one second. But actually, I had a real sense that as we understand our world to be going at 100 miles an hour, and whether that's because you've got little kids running about and just life doesn't stop because they don't stop. You know, they're filled with uh, Duracell batteries and they just run all day. Like, I don't know if the advert's still on the telly, but when I was a little boy a long, long, long time ago, there used to be an advert for Duracell batteries and it had a little bunny that had the Duracell batteries in it and it just kept going longer and longer and longer than all the other ba- uh, batteries that were around. And life feels like that, right? And I'm like, somebody unplug me. Well, this is one of the chances that we have, I think, to embrace a practice that helps us to unplug. The other thing that this allows us to do is not just to unplug from the world, but it's to become attentive to God and to ourselves. And what's fascinating about that is that we are not alone in thinking about this. The world itself, like the world outside the church, is fascinated with things like solitude and retreat and silence at the minute. There's loads of stuff about it. The BBC have made TV shows about it. They did a thing a few years ago where they took a bunch of people and put them in a monastery for a week. And it was utterly transformative for them to have had a week of silence. I don't know I could do a week of silence. But it is transformative and there's lots of neurological studies that show how retreat and silence are really actually just very good for us as human beings. Because here's the thing, why would we be surprised about that? If God is encouraging us, and I'll show you later that I think he is, to be in places of solitude and silence, he is the one who made us. Why would we be surprised it would be good for us at a physical and neurological level as well as just spiritually? Because we are not separate things. We we are not a soul and a body that's somehow unrelated to one another. We are a whole. And so taking care of our bodies and our minds is equally as important as taking care of our souls. Which is why last week I ended up committing to running a 10k I listened back to it to make sure that I actually did promise to do that, and I, and I did. So I'm looking forward to being challenged on that in about 10 years' time when I get around to doing it. But I will make the effort to do it. Um, 
This is a physical thing. It's not an unembodied exercise. We're not suddenly trying to tap into our spirituality, but we're actually recognizing that we are humans, that we function as whole people. And I know that when we're talking about silence and solitude, some of the extroverts among you in the room are already sweating bullets going, you're going to tell me to go away on my own and sit on my own and look at my navel for about three weeks and I can't cope with the idea of two seconds like that, never mind. Well, the good news for you is next week's topic is community. So we'll be fine. You only got to cope with this for a week. And here's the thing, we are absolutely going to talk about community and silence and solitude together. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in this quote that we've got here, he says, we recognise then, he's been talking about what this life in community looks like, he says, we recognise then that only as we are within the fellowship can we be alone, and only only he that is alone can live in the fellowship. The whole point is, if we become little individualistic Christians that think we can do it all on our own, we'll fail and fall away. I've got lots of friends, unfortunately, who thought that actually, you know what, I don't need the church for this Christian thing. I can promise you none of them are walking and growing in Jesus. Because being rooted in the community of faith is vital to growing as a disciple. But on the other hand, you also can't outsource your growth as a disciple. You can't go, oh, well, I'm in the church, so that's fine. It will happen by some sort of osmosis. We need to be involved in the process. We need to put the effort in. So, solitude. Why does it matter? Well, there's two things that I'm going to look at as an answer for this. The first, and probably the most important, is that Jesus did it. And if we want to be like Jesus, then it seems like a good idea to copy the things that Jesus did. In fact, that that passage we read at the beginning says, walk with me, learn from me, watch what I do, learn these unforced rhythms of grace. So we should look at Jesus. So I've got some examples, I think I've got about eight here, of when Jesus went in solitude. So the most famous, perhaps, is when he began his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. He has 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. We could do a whole sermon on just that, about that quiet, solitude place that he finds there. In Luke chapter 6, before he chooses the 12, he goes away and he spends the night in prayer and in solitude. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. On hearing of John the Baptist's death, he retreats and goes away on his own. Matthew chapter 4 verse 13. After he'd fed the 5,000, it says that he retreated up a mountain to rest and to pray. Matthew chapter 14 again, verse 23. Following a really busy period of ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 35, Jesus retreats and goes away. The one we're going to look at later, when he's with the 12, the 12 have come back from a ministry trip. And Jesus says, let's get away. Something funny happens in that story, but I'm not going to spoil my punchline. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 31. After Jesus heals the leper, he goes away and retreats. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. He does that that one first thing in the morning. On the Mount Transfiguration, after all the stuff that's been going on, the journey that they're on, he goes up the mountain and he takes with him three others. We find that in Luke 9 or in Matthew 17. And then finally... In the last week of his life, he retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. There are lots of other examples. The point is Jesus saw it as part of his humanity to retreat and go away. 
to hear his Father. I think that's crucial to understanding what Jesus means when he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That he was in communion with his Father. But it wasn't something that was just like, oh, well, I'm just walking down the street and it's always like this. It's like he just plugged in like in the Matrix or something. But in actual fact, he had to put effort into it. He had to make space for it. He had to change his schedule. He had to say no to some things so he could say yes to others. And in this case, yes to God. So it matters because Jesus did it. So let's turn in our Bibles. Mark chapter 6 and verse 31. The passage will come up on the screen here. Um, Okay. This is, the apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. The, the apostles have been away uh, doing some exciting ministry stuff that after Jesus had sent them out. They've been healing the sick and driving out demons. Then because so many people were coming and going, and I, I recognize that and I'm sure many of you do too. So many people coming and going, children, work colleagues, family, coming and going, coming and going. It says they did not even have a chance to eat. And man, I I feel like that sometimes, right? Just like, oh, I'll, I'll shove a sandwich down my throat as I run from one thing to another. That's not eating. That's like shoving something down your throat. They hardly had a chance to eat. And he said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. See, Jesus knew that it was important that after a spell of busyness, after a spell of spending themselves, that it was important they found a place for rest. That their physical bodies mattered. That their tiredness mattered. That recharging wasn't simply a case of keeping on going, doing what they were doing. They actually needed some solitude. A place of quiet. That passage continues though, it says, So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Great, out on a lake and nobody's going to find you there. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. (laughs) Ah, great. Now the extroverts among the apostles were obviously like, magic, great, we've got people here, I'm going to get all my energy. And the introverts were dying, saying, please, please, can we go back out on the boat? But there's a place for us to retreat and get away, particularly after spells of busyness and service. And actually, I think a challenge for us as a church is to recognize that there are rhythms and seasons in the church calendar where we will be busy. That's just par for the course. December isn't too far away, and we're not using the C word yet, so it's Advent is upon nearly upon us. And we will spend the time looking through Advent, but it will be busy. There are things that we will do. We have lots of different exciting things that are going to be happening. And we want to fully invest in that. But I also want to say that we need to be wise. So in January, we shouldn't put anything on. It should be nice and simple. And we rest as a community and as individuals. Because it seems to me that's the kind of pattern that Jesus is talking about when he's teaching his disciples by example here. One other example that we'll look at just now. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. 
On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Jesus had a decision to make. He knew that he needed to restructure how all these disciples were going to be organized. There were now a good number of them around. We don't know exactly how many. At least 72, probably more than that. And he thinks, well, we need to reorganize this. And what he doesn't do is go and get out his latest Stephen Covey book and go, right, uh, what's the latest management speak for how we organize 72 people? He doesn't even do, actually, in the past, I know God told Moses to appoint some to be over this many, and so I'll appoint a couple of guys and we'll be fine. No, he goes away into a place of solitude and he prays. What does that mean for us? I I really do think that when we've got decisions to make, getting out of the situation that you are in to a different place creates an opportunity for God to speak in a different way. When we're in a situation where we have to make a decision, we can go to a different place that I think opens up the chance for God to speak in a different way. So that's why it matters, first of all, because Jesus did it. The second reason it matters is because the same reasons that Jesus withdrew, busyness, all sorts of things pressing in and on different, different sorts of pressures, we have those too. And I want to point out three in particular that we recognize so that we can say this is we know what we're retreating from as much as we know what we're going to retreat to. The first is digital distraction. It's everywhere. It's right in front of us. You can't do screen without church without a screen, right? We've got screens everywhere in our life now. You get on the bus, there's a screen, usually advertising something to you or telling you that the bus is late, like you didn't already know the bus was late. I love that. You get on the bus and it says, this bus is running late, or there's got the little Twitter thing saying, the number 26 is running late. I know, I'm on the bus. You don't need to tell me it's late. Just get it on time. But there's all these things that pressure in on us everywhere, digitally. And I know in my life it makes me much less attentive to the people around me, to myself. I mean, we see that. People walking down the street, right? They're walking along the road. And the next thing, there's a car horn because they've nearly gotten run over because they just walked straight across the road. Headphones in, didn't bother looking. There's no attentiveness to the world around us. We get locked in this space where all we have is what's right in front of us. I mean, we have the entire world in our back pocket, right? The, the history of knowledge of the entire world is contained on this ludicrous thing that was invented just 12 years ago. That's all. 2007, the day the world changed, the iPhone was invented. It changed everything. And now we're stuck in this place, constantly bombarded. When we, do, when we get to Lent next year, I'm actually going to challenge some of us to do some sort of digital detox, some sort of digital Lent. I haven't quite figured out what that looks like because you do need to have to do some stuff for work. Either that or I'm happy not to speak to anybody for a month. But we'll, we'll come across, we'll figure that out. But our digital stuff robs us of the ability to be present to ourselves, to others, and to God. And so we need to realize we need to retreat from that in some ways. And we'll talk at the end of this about some practical ways we can do that. 
We need to retreat from busyness. I mentioned that earlier. Jesus did it with his disciples. We need to do it. It is one of the things that really presses in on us. And then the other is, I guess, just in a mental health capacity. Stress, anxiety, pressure. That actually we need to sometimes say all of those things are real and we need to create spaces for good mental health that allow us to work that way. Now be careful what I'm saying. There are some people for whom solitude would be a really terrible thing for their own mental health. So you know yourself. Do that. But for most of us, getting away with a bit of space to breathe will create a space that we don't need, that those pressures don't need to bear down on us so heavily. Those are the two reasons. It matters because we experience exactly the same things that Jesus did, but most importantly, it's because this is the way that Jesus lived. Solitude does a number of things for us. It removes the need to perform. Most of us are performing most of the time. Whether that's in a healthy way, so we're looking after children, we're trying to make sure that they're well cared for, we're looking after things in our job, we're doing our job, we put our kind of job hat on in the morning. Those are healthy ways to perform at some level. But there's lots and lots of unhealthy ways that most of us are performing all the time. We're wearing a mask, we're pretending to be something. We feel like we have to present ourselves in a certain way because of who we are, because of status, just because that's how we want to engage with the world. Well, if you go away in solitude and in silence, that's stripped away. There actually is no one to perform for other than God. And let me promise you, he sees right through it. And actually part of the journey of solitude is recognizing and becoming attentive to the things that God is saying, no, no, you need to move that out of the way, and you need to move that out of the way. And that's the uncomfortable part about solitude, is that actually the stuff that we're bothered with, God will kindly move it to the side. But, but first of all, it will nag us and niggle at us. And the other thing that solitude does is makes us attentive to Jesus. Because solitude is not about being alone, but about being with Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to create a space where I am on my own and I'm conscious of nothing around me. But we're trying to create a space where we are attentive to Jesus. So hard in the middle of our busy lives. See, I I try, I try twice a year to go away for a short trip. I get on my motorbike, throw my tent on the back... And actually, the time on my bike is great because I have to concentrate on what I'm doing on my motorbike, right? Because otherwise, I'll end up in a ditch or something. And I don't want that. And I know lots of people in here hate that I ride a motorbike. So I bless you for the fact that you love me enough to hate the fact I ride a motorbike. But it's good for me. And I like it. So um, until God says I'm not allowed to do it, I am keeping riding my motorbike. Anyway, I get on the bike and I can't think about anything else. I've got to concentrate on what I'm doing. The next corner, that car that's pulling out in front of you, all those sorts of things. So we do that. But then I get there and I I started camping again in my 40s. I tell you, that's quite a thing when you're 40 suddenly to find yourself lying on a field somewhere. But you know what? It's great because it's cheap, it's easy, and and you're on your own. You've got a sense of solitude. And I have experienced probably two things that I'd want to share in that context. One is that God always draws near. When I am intentional about going away, because this isn't just me going for a camping trip. This is me trying to retreat, to create another space. God never leaves you disappointed. 
Sometimes it feels a bit like Elijah under the broom tree. I'm going away, I'm completely exhausted. And a number of times I've gone away and done that and just felt like, God, I'm done. I can't be bothered with this anymore. Never since I've been here, of course. But people are awful and I've just had enough of them. And it's too much stress. And then God comes along and says something like he does to Elijah, which is dead simple. He says, why don't you sleep and eat? Simple things. And he restores my soul. Other times, like earlier this year, I went away and I went with a big list of questions. So I went with my list of questions and so I rode out there, got my tent up, had my dinner, went to sleep, got up early the next morning, went for a walk and I start talking to God about my questions. I'm like, right God, this one. This one. And all of a sudden I heard God say, no, I've got something else I'd like to talk to you about first, Glenn. And so scrumpled up my list and threw it out. Because God knows we're going on these retreats, or we've got this space marked out long before we do. And he has an agenda for it that may differ from our own. And our choice becomes, which one will we go with? Because I think God's kind. If we kept going at our questions, eventually he would ask them. But we don't get the richness of what we might do otherwise. So that's solitude. Silence is so closely related to it. In fact, it's really difficult to find anyone writing about this sort of stuff that doesn't link the two in some way or other. And silence is another thing that we just don't experience very often. Not in church, not in in the society that we live in. And actually, if you notice, people almost always walk around with headphones in now. Right. I mean, not so many of the older generation. I mean, I would love to see Winnie with a big set of Dr. Dre beats on, <laughs> heading down the street. That would be fun. <laughs> we'll see if we can get you a set of those for your Christmas, Winnie. Um, but, uh, but if you look around, the younger generation, all headphones in, heads down. There's noise all the time. There's never any quiet. Everywhere we go, there's noise. So... This morning, I I was in here really early. I was in about just after seven. And as I walked along uh, to the church, there was no noise. But there was noise because there was birds that were singing. Or they were gulls, actually. So we'll go with squawking rather than singing. But, But there was the noise of creation. So the absence of noise is not what silence is. It's something slightly different than that. And actually, I think when we talk about solitude and silence, it's very often about our own silence. It's about us not speaking. And I tell you, I find that awfully difficult. Most of you will appreciate now that I find being quiet difficult. Silence is important, though, because actually it begins to turn down the volume of all the other things and create a space where we can more easily hear God's voice which is ultimately what all of this is about. We shift, I think, in silence from speaking and asking and telling to listening, waiting and hoping as we sit before God. To go back to the story of Elijah again, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, after he's been under the broom tree and uh, God has kind of said, right, that's fine, uh, on you go, uh, go and eat and sleep. Then he goes to Mount Horeb and he has this experience in uh, verses 11 to 13. Uh, yeah. 
And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Can you imagine seeing those things? A wind that tears the mountain apart. An earthquake. Fire. All great and powerful and amazing things. And yet, God was not in those. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God was in the quiet whisper. We need places of silence that we might hear God's quiet whisper. As we find places of silence, we will more easily hear the voice of Jesus. We might hear what Richard Foster describes as the thunder of God's silence. It's just a beautiful way of putting it. In our busy, fast-paced world, we must pursue solitude and silence if we're to be attentive to our lives before Jesus and if we're to be with him. But I know some of you are sitting there going, that's great, but how do I do this? And that's not an unreasonable question. I have a few things I want to suggest, and then we're going to do an exercise, a practice. There's no point in us talking about practicing things and then not doing something. How do we do this? Well, we do it corporately, because this is a corporate, communal experience as well as a solitary experience. So Sundays, and I'm really struck by this, our Sundays need to be a place for people of solitude and of silence. We don't really like silence in our Sunday services. We are evangelicals. That's for those weird people with the smells and the bells, like Anglicans and people like that. They have lots of silences. My dear brother at the front here, who is visiting us from Australia, he arrived about 10 minutes ago. I haven't even spoken to him yet. He's an ordained Anglican priest, so. <laughs> he likes silence. <laughs> he likes silence. We need to make space for silence. We need to make space for us just to sit and to listen for God, even when that's uncomfortable. Perhaps especially when that's uncomfortable. Our small groups should be looking for ways to find time for silence. And by small groups, I don't just mean our organized small groups. What about when you're together with your friends? What about when you're in a prayer triplet? Don't feel like you need to fill the silence. I mean, how many of us have been in a prayer meeting and we all know that as soon as there's been a silence for more than about 15 seconds, somebody's coming in with a prayer, right? Because it'll feel like we've given up or something. But could we learn to practice actually just holding a silence? I was talking to Chris about what they do with the littlest kids, so the primary school kids. And quite regularly, they will sit for a full minute in silence. Now, I don't know if Chris is doing that just to get a break, but she's trying to teach them something that actually we can sit and wait on God. So we can do it corporately, but we definitely also want to do it individually. Again, uh, Richard Foster in this book here, uh, Celebration Discipline, they're all falling down, um, 
he talks about the little solitudes of every day. And it's, I think it's a really helpful idea because when I'm talking, oh, I get away twice a year, well, that's twice a year. What do you do with the rest of the year? And some people won't be able to go away twice a year or even once a year. So what do you do? Well, he's saying that there are little solitudes in every day. That moment when you first wake up, perhaps, when nobody else is awake in the house. What do you do with that time? Can you use it? What about in the car, stuck in a traffic jam on the way to work or on the way to wherever you're going? Could you use that as a little solitude, a space of silence? Turn off the podcast, turn off Radio 4. Just have some silence. What about when you're walking? We're going to do an exercise later uh, in just a couple of minutes, and it's going to encourage us to be attentive to our breathing as part of our silence because we're physical people, and actually that's part of our, how God has made us and the way that we breathe. But actually there's another way you can do that. If you're walking, become attentive to how you're walking. Become more present in where you are. So don't just walk, like we can all walk, most of us, those of us who haven't been burdened with a disability have the ability to walk and it's something we don't really think about. Actually become conscious of your walking, be thankful for your walking. Be thankful for the fact that you can put one foot in front of the other, that you have a posture, begin to relax. And and actually, all of those things are good things for us to do as we begin to learn to be attentive to ourselves. And then we discover, oh, wait a minute, there's a bit of silence and solitude here. And oh, look, Jesus is with me. So be, find those little solitudes that fill our day. We used to... Uh, we used to know a family who had a room in their house and a big chair in that room. And if you sat in that chair, nobody would bother you. It was a chair where you could go and rest and be there. It was a physical space in the house that was marked out for solitude. Could you do that in your house? I mean, it may not be possible, but if it is, how about just as a practical way of saying, I want to have a place of solitude. I'm going to have that chair there, and everybody knows that when we're sat in that chair, you don't bug us. You leave us alone that actually we're having a place of solitude. I think that's just a really profound way to embrace that. And then live with the rhythm of the year. You know, sometimes life is just busy and there's nothing you can do about that. You know, whether that's because of children's routines, your own routine, your work routine, church life, whatever it happens to be. Just embrace that. Don't be afraid of it. But also make sure that where that busyness isn't there, take full advantage of it. You know, take holidays if you're able to. Find spaces that you can go, maybe that aren't far from. We are so blessed. Like, you get get in a car or on a bus and within half an hour you can be in the middle of nowhere. Somewhere for a walk, somewhere, so just for a day, a half day, whatever. In fact, again, Richard Foster... Uh, he suggests that four times a year you should take three or four hours and go away and just say, what is my life goals? What am I doing? Am I, am I orienting my life to the things that I feel I should be? And I think that's just a really profound, practical way. He, he suggests going to places like libraries. And we have the National Library in the centre of town, beautiful building to go and sit in. We go for a walk on Porty Beach for a couple of hours. You'd have to go back and forth, I suspect, but you could do that. You know, walk part of the John Muir Way. Go out towards the Pentlands and have a wander in the Pentlands. 
Find a place to go and sit by a river. Find a place of solitude. And do it intentionally. And mark it out as something that you must do. Because you require to give your yes to that. And it will require you saying no to other things. Because there will always be things that come along and say, oh, could you do this or could you do that? And they'll be good things. But actually, if you want solitude and silence in this life, then you're going to need to do that. And I want to recognize one other thing, which is that sometimes those rhythms and those seasons of life are much more than just a year. So if you've got really young kids... Solitude and silence is like, you what? It's not possible. Grab it where you can. Nap time. I remember the day Zoe stopped having an afternoon nap. It was like the world had ended. I was like, what do you mean I don't have two hours of peace and quiet in the afternoon? It was like, no way. Uh, but it, so, so just recognize that that that's not the case. And this is something I said last week, and I want to, I'm going to finish with this. I don't want to be a Pharisee with all of this. I want to offer up some practices we can do that are helpful. This is not the law. You are not required to do any of this. We are freed from the law, as someone reminded me in a text yesterday. We are freed from the law. We're not burdened by that. But actually... There are some things that can be helpful for us. So if you're hearing this as heavy and as a burden, I want you to ignore it and just forget that I ever spoke a word this morning. This should be liberating, not a burden. Okay? Does that make sense? Good. Not often the preacher gives you permission to ignore all that he's just spent 30 minutes saying. So take advantage. We're going to spend a few minutes at the end here doing an exercise that I've sent to our small groups, so they'll be encouraged to take part in it as well. Uh, It's from a woman called... uh, No, I changed it. I didn't use her one, actually. There is a woman called Ruth Haley Barton who has a book on silence and solitude that I thoroughly recommend to you. And I'll just do this while I'm doing it. Last week I said I had some books that I'd found helpful as I was preparing this. This is a selection of them that I've put at the front. You can have a look at them. Do not please take them away because I know they'll just disappear into the ether and I'll never get them back. But if you'd really like to borrow one, come and talk to me and I can write it down so that I make sure that they don't disappear because I reckon I've got thousands of pounds worth of books scattered all over the world that I have no idea where, where they went to. In fact, a friend of mine found a book on his bookshelf this week and sent me a picture of it went, look what I just found. He's had it for seven years. Um, uh, So have a look at these at the end. The other thing uh, is that the notes I've put together for our small groups, I've actually printed them off. So if you'd like to take away some of the resources, we're going to do that every week and you can pick those up. Uh, So it will have this practice and another one uh, on it uh, as well. So there you go. Okay. Take a deep breath. Put away your phone. Get comfortable. We've got these lovely chairs. They're quite comfy. For most people, sitting with your back straight, your shoulders relaxed, feet on the floor, that's a good place, but whatever makes you comfortable. I want to recognise some people are going to be really uncomfortable when we do this exercise. I apologise, 
but I don't. I think it's good for us. But again, this is hopefully just meant to be helpful. Close your eyes. Take some long, deep, slow breaths. If it's helpful to you, count four seconds in. Wait four seconds, four seconds out. But please don't turn blue. Pay attention to your breathing. Let those thoughts that are coming into your mind, just let them flitter out again. Because your mind will seize this opportunity to run wild. When you notice your mind start to wander, just recenter with a quick prayer. Father, I look to you. rather than being focused on ourselves on our own breathing and on our own thoughts we're going to turn our mind towards God begin to notice God's presence around you welcome his love, his joy and his peace that the Holy Spirit brings become attentive to that something you need to get off your chest to God in prayer take the opportunity for some people it can be helpful to imagine Jesus sitting in the chair next to them just for the next two minutes just be attentive to Jesus presence
Father, we are thankful for the chance to be with you. For a time of silence. Thank you that you delight to draw near to us. That in all these things we discover that you rejoice over us with singing. That you quiet us with your love. May we go out of here with gratitude. And a stillness in our souls. Learning to walk in your ways, in those unforced rhythms of grace. Amen.